0: And thanks for listening.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Fully electrifying our homes and cars could cut the amount of total energy we need by half.
2: We generate our electricity thermoelectrically, but a huge amount of that
1: energy is wasted as heat. President Biden wants half of the cars sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2030, and automakers are increasingly putting money and marketing muscle behind EVs.
3: We are seeing opportunities in more states with electrification and the expansion of this market is huge and we've really only begun to scratch the surface.
1: And as we make this shift, equity is essential. It is simply
2: stated and obviously true that you don't fix climate change if only 50% of people can afford the solutions.
1: Electrifying everything, next on Climate One. In the not-too-distant future, your entire home could be electric, from your stove to your water heater to the car you drive. And all of it might be powered by solar panels on your own roof or one nearby, which would also put power back into the grid. This is part of the net-zero future envisioned by inventor and entrepreneur Saul Griffith in his new book, Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. Griffith says when we electrify everything, we'll only need about half the energy we currently use.
2: Fundamentally, electric machines don't generate the waste heat that internal combustion engines do. An electric car uses about one third of the energy to go the same distance as a gasoline car, provided that you provide the electricity from a clean source like wind or solar or hydroelectricity. When you use a heat pump to heat a room, it uses about one third the energy that a natural gas heater would use to heat the same room. And then what's underappreciated in the American energy economy today, and in fact in all, all the countries of the world, is that we generate our electricity thermoelectrically. What that means is we heat water to make steam, spin a turbine to turn a generator to make electricity. But a huge amount of that energy is wasted as heat sometimes half in natural gas sometimes two-thirds of the energy is wasted as heat if you're doing it with coal so if we electrify all of the f- demand side machines that means the things that you and i recognize because they're in our garage or they're in our kitchen or they're in our basement and then we provide them all with electricity that's produced with sunshine and wind we actually probably only need 40 percent, definitely less than half of the energy we th- we, we think we need today
1: And you say that electrifying everything will require three to four times as much as electricity as we currently generate. So we're going to need less total energy, but replacing oil with electricity means a lot more electricity. So how will we accomplish that in short order, and and who's going to pay for it?
2: So America uses three and a half terawatts of what they call primary energy. Primary energy is defined as tons of coal, barrels of oil, but only about a half a terawatt or 500 gigawatts is can, is electricity delivered to the end user today. So if we electrify everything, we actually need to triple that amount of electricity to about one and a half terawatts, but then a lot of that other three and a half goes away. That will mean enormous amounts of wind and solar generation. Um, as much as 20 or 25% can probably be generated on our rooftops of our houses and our commercial buildings. Um, we can probably do another 10% in our communities in what's called community solar. But then we'll still need, on top of that, some utility scale generation that'll be out in the countryside. And, you know, we shouldn't rule out nuclear. Uh, America's actually got a very good safety history with nuclear. And whether the nuclear can arrive in time is the real question because we sort of need to do this transition in 20 years. And in the last 20 years, we only commissioned one new nuclear plant and we retired more than we commissioned.
1: Yeah, a couple of them went bankrupt and they, they didn't work out well, those new ones. They were over budget and over exactly. fiascos. So, so.
2: <laughs> so I actually think that, the, the, yeah, I think if you if you were a betting person, the majority is going to be wind and solar. Um, there'll be some geothermal, there'll be some uh, some biofuels for some applications, there'll be some hydroelectricity, but wind, wind and solar are now proven to be you know the cheapest generators of electricity in the world.
1: There's still this kind of perception that green costs more, and Bill Gates has been out there talking about the green premium. So if new wind and solar utility scale are the cheapest energy on the planet, does that kind of pass through to customers?
2: So uh, I have the benefit that Bill doesn't of being an Australian citizen, so I get to have a broader picture of the goings-on in the world. And there is a green premium today for some things, but that green premium is being bridged. So. Today, if you went to buy an electric car, so let's just take a middle of the road, like a Hyundai Kona electric, is about ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars more than the Hyundai Kona gasoline model. But Bloomberg New Energy Finance is predicting that by 2025 or so, that electric vehicle will be cheaper than the internal combustion engine
1: vehicle to buy, and it's already cheaper to operate.
2: It's much. It's already much cheaper to operate. An electric car running off solar on your roof is three or four cents a mile and a gasoline car is 10 to 20 cents a mile depending on on what it is so we'll bridge that gap shortly on the vehicles in australia there's been something called the australian rooftop solar miracle so we got pretty smart about regulation and certification and training in australia and eliminated what's called the soft costs of installing solar so the the solar modules themselves costs about 30 cents per watt. In Australia, it costs you about a dollar per watt to install it on a roof after all of the labor and the racking and the inverters and the connecting it up. But in America, it costs about $3 a watt because the, we have extra regulatory burden, permitting burdens, inspections. At the Australian price of a dollar a watt, rooftop solar or electricity in Australia, after you've gone to the bank and financed, it is five or six cents per kilowatt hour of electricity delivered to your house. To put that in perspective, the average in the US is 13.8 cents. In California, it's as high. And I know I'm paying about 22 cents and I'm sure you're paying about 20 cents a kilowatt hour. So it is fair to say delivered to the customer, the cheapest electricity in the world is in Australia right now, um, the rooftop solar. And that could be true here too. And, and that's something that we could make it possible with a regulatory pen. The other amazing thing that has happened in terms of this green premium, yes, it does cost you more for the electric induction stovetop and it does cost you more for the the electric heat pump water heater and the electric heat pump furnace. But all of them are now at parity over their lifetime because their performance is so good and they, they are cheaper to operate. To return to your original question, I don't think it's quite the question of who's going to pay for it, which, in, which plays to the narrative that I think is all too common, that this is going to cost us all money.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: If we do this right, if you could create a country that had the rooftop solar policy of Australia, the electric vehicle policy of Norway or California, and sort of the heat pump and building heating systems and policies of sort of Japan or South Korea you'd have the right set of things to start saving consumers thousands of dollars a year.
1: Sounds like an interesting place to, uh, to live. You write that there can be no, not in my backyard with solar and wind energy, but in practical terms, we all know that you know, NIMBYism is alive and well. So how do you propose we change people's minds about you know, solar and wind, even if it's cheap across their cities and farms?
2: I don't think we'll change everyone's minds in, in the timeframe required. Um, I'm not naive about that. There are enough spaces even for the people who will prevent some of these installations from going in to still meet all of the demand. I think what we need to do is change as many of those minds as possible that this is the future. And you know, one of the things is to outline how much space and how much ugliness some of the existing energy infrastructure is. We have... You know, hundreds of thousands, actually millions of miles of natural gas pipeline in the US that leaks. Um, we have millions of miles of oil pipelines and uh, that we all, all create other problems. And in fact, the footprint of the solar and the wind we need is not substantially more than the footprint that we have for this existing fossil fuel infrastructure. If you think about the setbacks that are required for those pipelines, the setbacks are, that are required for the rail that is dedicated to taking coal from where it's mined to where it's burned. And so, I, you know, I think there's a lot to win here. We won't win everyone over, but even, you know, I think we will find enough space to, to put all of the renewables that we need.
1: I often hear uh, as, you know, talking about EVs, well, can the grid handle it? So, uh, we know that the grid is old in the United States in a, l- a lot of places. It's underinvested in. Perhaps there's some potentially some help on the way in the, if this infrastructure bill gets passed. Can the grid handle uh, a sudden influx of convection cooktops, electric vehicles, uh, and so forth?
2: The answer is absolutely not today. But I, I think it's worth reminding us. Ourselves a few things, but, you know, we we have two or three decades to achieve this project to hit the climate targets we need to hit. So two or three decades is not exactly overnight. I was reminded yesterday that the U.S. grid doubled the amount of electricity that it delivered between 1950 and 1960, and then it doubled that again between 1960 and 1970. So we did four x the electricity in 20 years, which is very analogous to what we have to do today. And as far as I can remember, we have a lot more technology with which to do that type of project today than we did in 1950. So it's not infeasible that we can deliver all of that more load. We also need to change the rules of the grid So because a lot of the energy flows now are going to be bi-directional. Historically, electricity just went one way into your house. Now we need electricity to go both ways. So occasionally your car is cooking my breakfast, and sometimes my my home battery is heating your your living room in the evening. So you know, getting those rules right, making all of these devices that will have small computers talk to each other and coordinate that in a very analogous way to the way that the internet coordinates all of our communications transactions that that needs to happen. I think. Really, answer to your question is, if you choose to not want to solve the problem that is climate change and go through the energy transition, you can always find reasons why this is going to be hard or difficult.
1: That precedent of of 4X from 50 to to 70 is remarkable. A lot of what was happening there was rural electrification, bringing electricity to people who didn't have it yet. And that was kind of an equity in rural America, farms in America. So how do we ensure equity in this transition to make sure that people, the people who are most vulnerable and can't afford some of these things are not left behind?
2: To be perfectly honest, I think this is the most important question in the climate debate period it is simply stated and obviously true that you don't fix climate change if only 50% of people can afford the solutions it's also fairly obvious and true once you state it that like roughly half of people pay net tax and roughly half of people receive some benefit that's the the idea behind the tax system so the how do you finance this and how do you enable the 50% of lowest income households to come along for the ride is enormously important. And I think we need to employ every possible mechanism to do that. And and it potentially is the greatest um, equalizing political movement that will ever happen in solving climate change because by necessity we have to bring every everyone along. We'll do some of that with creative financing. We'll do some of that with... Um, grants and rebates, do some of it with subsidies. Uh, and we need to do all of the above, um, otherwise the, the problem doesn't get solved. And I think we should be, you know, honestly, preferentially pri- uh, prioritizing some of those communities in the pilots that we need to do to learn how to do this, so that they become advocates for the solution and a political wedge isn't driven there.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about electrifying everything, coming up redesigning the grid to better accommodate renewable and battery energy.
2: The sun's only up for roughly half of the day and then it's down for the other half and the wind doesn't always blow. So this is the unreliability of wind and solar. The other way of looking at it is actually the sun is incredibly reliable and it's come up every day for the last three billion years and it will continue to do so. And we've just got to learn to Bank on that reliability, put that energy into batteries, and then redistribute it in a grid that has new rules that allows the energy to go both ways.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues.
4: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
1: Let's get back to my conversation with Saul Griffith, author of Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. I asked him to explain the concept of grid neutrality, which he says is critical to the all-electric future.
2: The grand bargain in the mid-20th century was to give a virtual monopoly to utility operators in exchange for them guaranteeing very high uh, reliability of service of electricity to the users and making sure that they didn't overcharge people who were old or infirm or, or something like this. But because of that, the utilities set the rules and they set the rules for energy generating systems that look like the ones they own and for a distribution grid that looks like the one that they operate, that they use today. Without doubt, as we transition, the largest battery that will exist in the United States will be the battery of our 250 million vehicles and those batteries will move around every day. That's fundamentally different to the 20th century infrastructure. The second biggest battery that will exist is the battery inside the thermal systems of all of our homes, the hot water heaters and the space heaters, and the batteries that are on the side of our house to help us back up. You know, everyone can state also, fairly obviously true, that the sun's only up for roughly half of the day, and then it's down for the other half, and the wind doesn't always blow. So this is the unreliability of wind and solar. The other way of looking at it is actually the sun is incredibly reliable and it's come up every day for the last three billion years and it will continue to do so. And we've just got to learn to bank on that reliability, put that energy into batteries and then redistribute it in a grid that has new rules that allows the energy to go both ways. And I think if we want the benefits of this transition to go to households, which I think should be our priority. We need new rules for the grid that don't advantage the traditional utility model. We want households to be treated the same as uh, utility-scale generators, and we want vehicles and the batteries in our households to be equally treated in terms of storage, because I think we really need to make sure that the economic benefit is passed on through to the to the voter, to the consumer, however you want to look at them, because at the end of the day, unless they're realizing the benefits of this transition, there's going to be resistance that's going to slow us down.
1: One of the most dramatic stories recently has been the move to electrify buildings and keep natural gas out of New buildings, in some cases, uh, existing buildings that took off quite quickly. The natural gas industry came back, the methane industry, pretty quickly and forcefully opposing local governments trying to move toward all new electric construction, those sorts of things. The pipe fitters are in there also trying to preserve that. They've successfully blocked such moves in several places. If we want to electrify everything, what can be done to overcome the resistance of the incumbent methane fossil gas industry and the unions that are part of it? I think
2: the way people conceptualize this transition is that it's all going to happen and tomorrow we're just going to turn off all of the fossil fuels and then turn on everything electric and everyone's job goes away tomorrow. That's just not physically possible. Um, We have 90 million homes with natural gas connections that have tens of, you know, 60-odd million natural gas furnaces and et cetera, et cetera. All of those machines last 10 to 20 years and some of them were only purchased last year. To hit our climate goals, you roughly just need to make sure that the next time one of those machines is retired, that it is replaced with an all-electric clean machine. In a workforce training sense, that means you're not going to lose your job as a pipe fitter or turner today. You just don't train your daughter to become one for the next generation because there will be 20 years more of transitioning out those machines. And the good news is that there will be more labor more than likely in building the the replacements that will be electric heat pumps and these other things similar skills in those jobs we just need to make sure that what you do do is as you you transition out at the end of your career and your daughter is trained as uh, a heat pump technician or an hvac technician or a wind power technician Technician or a solar farm installer, and the, you know that's the cadence. So it's 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 now to be expressed in the, a single generation this transition. And I think it's critical that we get these unions and these organisations on the side because, quite frankly, we need all of those skills. We the, there's an enormous shortage in electricians, an enormous shortage in HVAC technicians, an enormous shortage in the people who will actually go out and engage in the transition of all of this machinery that needs to be
1: electrified. We're talking here about electrifying everything, and electric cars are definitely a lot better than gasoline cars in many ways. They're more fun to drive, more efficient, as you've described, but some people would say that, you know, replacing gas cars with electric cars still is too many cars, is still car dependent. Um, what do you say to you know, reworking, having more transit-centric, more transit-oriented uh, housing development, those sorts of things that simply switching gas cars for electric cars still leaves us with a problematic car-centric culture?
2: I think that's absolutely true. So there's a, a a little piece of me that's extremely sympathetic to that argument because I was actually arrested with 5,000 of my closest buddies riding on bicycles across the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the evening before Australia didn't sign the first Kyoto Protocol. Mm. And I was an enormous advocate for, you know, everyone should walk, everyone should ride bikes, you know, there should be no cars, we should all do transit. And... While I still see all, I still there's a piece of me that is all of those. I think, you know, having been married for 15 years to a wonderful woman who I love very dearly, who won't ride her bike everywhere that I want to ride, (laughs) (laughs) I now realize that um, even if a marital bond is not enough to make someone an advocate for giving up their car, you're not going to convince the whole population. Mm -hmm. And I think you can now state that technically the truism is you could solve climate change with a substitution model that gives us all the same size cars, same size homes, all of these things, just do it with electric, generate that electricity. We could achieve that. I think that's an easy sell. And I have, you know, largely just written a book that tells you that story. But the last chapter does try to warn you that, you know, we can solve climate change, but still have an ocean plastics problem. We can solve climate change, but still spend 50 minutes of our days locked in gridlock traffic because there's just so many cars in our overcrowded cities. So I I do hope that we do more um, mass transit, but I don't think you can go out with a narrative that tells everyone we'll solve climate change by forcing you to give up your car. So I've, I've stopped trying to push that.
1: Yeah, they're coming for your cars and your burgers uh, is playing right into uh, the people who want to slow this down. Saul Griffith is an inventor, entrepreneur, and author of Electrify, an optimist playbook for our clean energy future. You write that billionaires can escape to Mars, but the rest of us have to stay and fight. What do you think of billionaires, often white men who made their fortunes in tech and finance, leading the systems change required to stabilize the climate? Do you trust their motivations, and do you think that we ought to look for those kinds of heroes to lead the systems change that we're talking about?
2: I know more than my fair share of billionaires, and I actually think their motivations are good. The ones that I interact with are generally interested in climate, and they're generally interested in climate solutions, and their motivation is similar to my motivation. It's like we would like to maintain the health of the earth and its ecosystems for our children. I do observe, however, that billionaires typically have been removed from the realities of life for (laughs) a few decades, and (laughs) it makes their perspective on what solutions look like unrealistic. And I think, unfortunately, the way the world's political systems and economic systems have developed, billionaires have an outsized Influence on our politics and how these things happen. So I think there's no way to solve climate change without engaging a lot of them. But I think the most critical thing for billionaires to learn is empathy for the average human condition. What I'd like them to do is develop empathy. So you know, drive through a low-income suburb in Ohio and uh, imagine the climate change electrification journey of a of a single mother and a low income. How are we going to bring those people along on this grand journey to address climate change. And I, and I think you need that empathy to understand where the real barriers are. Most of the billionaires, I know, they tend towards libertarian. They don't believe that the government has any role here. When you go to hand your hat around in Silicon Valley to ask if they would sign up to support the the bills trying to go through... Congress right now on climate they say well there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I don't like and I don't believe government should have such a role and I think that's just naive the the energy system is one of the most regulated pieces of our of modern life and a huge portion of the cost is regulatory and if we don't have regulatory reform we're not going to solve climate change and we need these this sort of libertarian attitude to give way to empathy and and engagement empathy for real people's real experience and engagement with the political process in a way that makes the future that we need to make possible, possible. None of those activities look like going to space.
1: <laughs> right. So not so much from the elites, the idea that the Silicon Valley will solve this or or the, the, the political and economic elites will solve this.
2: I'm over that narrative. I, I mean, nearly everything that Silicon Valley commercializes actually began with a sane bureaucrat running... Funding for same things, including solar energy, including batteries, including wind power, including pathways to make steel without carbon dioxide, right? All of these things actually came from the taxpayers' dollars funding well-motivated bureaucrats to run smart programs and research programs through national labs, through universities, through independent companies to develop all these technologies.
1: Yeah, well, the internet came from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and semiconductors came from aerospace, so yeah, that's a Exactly. Um, you've worked on research projects for many federal agencies, including NASA and DARPA. Uh, what have you learned about how quickly they can make big changes, and do we need to go back to those you know, uh, thankless bureaucrats you just mentioned and empower them and celebrate them because they are, are key to this?
2: I would love for them all to be celebrated. Nearly every technology we that we need is already at the table in fixing climate is testimony to that success. That's not to say that we shouldn't still swing for the fences even more. Certainly uh, an ambitious program manager at ARPA-E that could help bring a new fusion technology to market within the decade would have an enormous impact on climate. There's still a whole lot of good research problems where substantial breakthroughs would make solving climate a hell of a lot easier.
1: And, and you repeatedly point out that there uh, will be a better quality of life, not uh, major sacrifices, right? But don't we need people to be engaged in addressing the climate crisis in order for there to be sufficient public pressure to make this transformation happen?
2: Yes, I think you you do need people to fear what we have to lose there's two things that people fear that we have to lose. Some people fear that we have to lose the natural environment, species, biodiversity, the health of the ecosystems that enable our species to thrive. Some people fear the loss of their barbecue or their their monster truck. It is possible now to give people their barbecues and their monster trucks and do it electrically and take that fear of loss away, but still be motivated by the, the fears around what we have to lose in terms of the environment. But I actually think, majority of people are motivated by by the what we have to win narrative. What do we have to win? We have far healthier children. It is extremely well established and well understood that burning natural gas inside your home, whether it's in the kitchen or in your furnace, has a terrible impact on the respiratory health of the people in that and the pets in that house. That problem gets solved by virtue of electrification addressing climate change. The health of our communities and the smog in our cities caused by of the oil we're burning in our cars is another thing that will lead to greater respiratory health it will have huge health benefits beyond that as well and our skies will become clearer and the air around us will become cleaner the waterways will become cleaner on top of that we can now see that energy is very likely to actually get cheaper not more expensive which is counterintuitive because we've had three decades of very successful propaganda campaigns telling you that this is going to be too expensive, this is going to be too hard. But it's not. Wind and solar really are just so cheap now, and batteries are about to be so cheap, and electric vehicles are about to be so cheap that you you know will see thousands of dollars of savings in, in every household for every year.
1: Sal Griffiths is an inventor, entrepreneur, and author of Electrify, an optimist playbook for our clean energy future. Thanks for your insights, Saul, and your optimism on electrifying everything around us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: As local governments across the country pass regulations that favor clean energy, some oil and gas companies are going to big and sometimes veiled lengths to make sure their industry isn't shut out. One tactic is called astroturfing, where community support for the industry appears to be grassroots, but it's actually organized by companies to promote themselves. Miranda Green, a reporter with Floodlight, reports on one such case she uncovered at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in an investigation with the Los Angeles Times and The Guardian.
5: When Shola Busheri testified in front of the Long Beach Board of Harbor Commissioners, she said that the dirty diesel trucks that drove back and forth in her neighborhood shouldn't be allowed one year longer. My name is Shola Boucheri, and I'm a resident. The people's health is at risk and... Waiting five years to incentive, uh, make incentives for the trucks to be changed is a, long, is a long time. It was 2017 and Long Beach officials were gathering input on their new Clean Air Action Plan. The choice was whether to transition the diesel-powered trucks that transported shipments from the L.A. and Long Beach ports to electric trucks or a shorter-term change to natural gas. But there was one thing those officials didn't know at the time. Some locals, including Busheri, had been recruited and paid to testify in favor of the gas option by the gas industry. She thought she was working at an environmental fellowship.
3: Six months with my bachelor's, I could not find a job. She hired me and told me it's an intern position and it's, it's temporary, but we're gonna fight for the Clean Air Action Plan. And, and then I find out that it was the gas company.
5: A company called Method Campaign Services paid Boucheri $20 an hour to attend trainings and speak at city council meetings. Method was paid at least $10,000 by Clean Energy Fuels, a California gas company with high stakes in the energy transition. Boucheri was one of 10 residents hired to speak in favor of the gas-powered trucks. But it turns out her situation isn't unique.
4: It's very common, but... Four or five years back, I saw a big uptick in this strategy and I think there was a growing recognition that you know the fossil fuel industry just didn't have the support that it used to. And I think what we've seen is a more aggressive effort to resort to these tactics of creating fake movements that want to protect their interests.
5: That's Adrian Martinez, an attorney with the nonprofit law firm Earth Justice, who works closely with community groups who wanted zero emission electric trucks at the ports. He says while it may not have been obvious to the local officials at the time, it was clear there was a pretty aggressive campaign to get folks out to testify. Similar tactics have been used by industries across the country. In New Orleans, a public relations firm working for Energy Corporation paid actors to urge officials at meetings to approve a gas-fired power plant. The American Gas Association paid Instagram influencers to post about how much they love cooking on gas stoves.
4: As people have come to understand more about the harms of you know, natural gas and other fossil fuels, I think people are pushing back. And, and I think these AstroTurf efforts are to kind of counter uh, this pressure cooker we're in where People want change, and this industry doesn't want to change.
5: And it's effective. In several places, local government efforts to ban gas hookups in new construction, for example, have been blocked from passing. The industry says they're making sure their technology is not overlooked. In the case of the LA ports, the conversation was also about cost. Matt Schrapp is chief executive officer for the Harbor Trucking Association.
1: We're a can-do kind of industry, and... Electric trucks are pretty cool. I've ridden in them. I've crawled around on them. Uh, The challenge is is that the truck technology is sort of the lighter lift. And for the trucking industry, our main concern is is where are we going to charge it, when are we going to charge it, and how much is that energy going to cost?
5: According to Schrapp, the trucking industry takes a neutral stance when it comes to how the motor is powered, as long as it's cost-effective. But he says he could see why the gas industry paid employees to testify for a technology he agrees is being overlooked.
1: I don't think it's a new technique. And if they're giving somebody $20 to go buy lunch for themselves is one thing as
6: opposed to something that might be considered more nefarious. I I don't think that anybody is innocent in, in every turn of this discussion because there's other interests that are pushing just as hard on the electric side of things.
5: But Port resident Boucheri says as someone who cares about the environment, she still feels duped. It didn't make me feel comfortable. I was like, wait, what's going
3: on? <laughs> you know, is this good? Is this something that I want to support with you?
5: She says knowing what she does now, she would have given more thought to taking the job. For Climate One, I'm Miranda Green in Los Angeles.
1: You're listening to a conversation about electrifying everything. Coming up... How auto companies are responding to what consumers want from their electric vehicles.
3: A high-performance vehicle that gets the job done, but also that is not compromising to our environment, our public health, and the climate.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: Hey, Climate One fans. We have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. The transportation sector is the biggest source of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. I invited three guests to discuss the current state of the electric car and truck market and what the future might hold. Sarah Baldwin is Director of Electrification Policy at Energy Innovation, a think tank. Cynthia Williams is Global Director of Sustainability at Ford Motor Company. Josh Nasser is legislative director of the United Auto Workers of America. For full disclosure, Ford Motor Company is a funder of Climate One. Ford's F-150 truck has been the best-selling vehicle for decades. Next year, the company will release an electric version, the F-150 Lightning. the company has already received more than 120,000 pre-orders. I asked Sarah Baldwin of Energy Innovation how big a deal the F-150 Lightning is in the move away from fossil fuels.
3: I think it's huge and I think the response to the offering from Ford uh, is indicative of what consumers are increasingly asking for which is you know a high performance vehicle that gets the job done and uh, can do a number of things, both, you know, from a family standpoint, as well as a, a a workhorse standpoint, but also that is not compromising to our environment, our public health, and the climate. And also the fact that it uh, provides battery backup and an emergency response performance uh, component is, is huge. I mean, resilience is front and center for a lot of people right now. It, everywhere we look, we've got climate disasters and natural disasters coming at us. So I think, uh, Kudos to Ford and to to all the innovators out there who who came to the table with this incredible offering.
1: Yeah, the electric F-150 is a big cultural moment in this country. Cynthia Williams, Ford sells about 900,000 F-150 trucks a year, bringing in more than $40 billion in revenues. What are the company's expectations for making and selling F-150 Lightnings, and will Ford put marketing muscle behind it?
7: Oh, absolutely. I, we think we have a huge opportunity here uh, with this customer and with the orders that we're, we're seeing, about 80 percent of the orders are new customers to Ford. And so we're hoping to, you know, just build on what we're doing in terms of uh, bringing vehicles that customers love to our portfolio and, you know, our approach is to um, highlight or to electrify our iconic products. And these are vehicles customers already understand, love. And so our goal is to bring the capability of what they, you know, the know-how of the vehicle, uh, making sure it's high performing, high quality, capable of doing the job is is the main thing uh, for the consumer.
1: Right. Ford was late to electrify its vehicles compared to some other companies, but now it's putting its iconic Mustang and F-150, electrifying them rather than some other kind of niche models. But Cynthia, SUVs and trucks have fat profit margins. The electric F-150 will be loaded with expensive batteries. How long will it take Ford to make money on the electric F-150?
7: Well, out the gate, we're making money on the electric f-150 and again the the goal uh with the the large volume that we have with you know america's best-selling truck for over uh 40 years uh we're making sure that we can commonize as many parts as possible and bringing uh, a vehicle affordable vehicle to customers
1: josh nasser ford ceo jim farley admitted recently that there is tension among workers about the company's electrification moves what concerns does the United Auto Workers have about the move away from the internal combustion engines and what that means for jobs?
6: Well, I mean, with this shift, which is going to take place, you know, um, you know over, over an uncertain amount of time, but is taking place, you know, there's, that, that means that there's, there's new battery production. It means that there's, uh, you know, changes in the supply chain. And there's a concern that those jobs, um, you know, will not be of the same standard of the jobs that they're accustomed to you know, good middle-class uh, jobs that, that you could really build a future on. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And, um, you know, the, the reality is, is there's a lot of uh, non-union auto companies uh, out there who um, take a pretty aggressive stance around, you know, when workers are trying to, to get together and, and form a union.
1: Ford recently announced an $11 billion investment in two new factories in the Southeast to make batteries and employ a combined 11,000 workers. Cynthia, will those new battery jobs be unionized?
7: We plan to have the unions uh, to um, localize there. Uh, We will give the employees the opportunity uh, to join uh, the unions, and we respect and and, and we'll leave that opportunity and that that commitment to the employees uh, for them joining. But we think new jobs are coming. We're partners with the UAW. My dad was a UAW worker for 30 years, so I have huge respect for the UAW.
1: UAW says it supports the move, but Josh, the Southeast is not known for being union-friendly. What's your take on this big move to the
6: Southeast? You know, we have members, um, you know, throughout the country um, from all regions, and, um, you know, if workers have a fair chance, um, you know, to 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 join a union, we think that they'll uh, if that's provided, then it'll be a good, great outcome um, and uh, no reason to think it, it won't. I mean, and we have master contracts. So um, in, in final assembly, the wages as set in a national agreement, you know, are consistent throughout.
1: Sarah, an article recently in The Atlantic sees a bargain in Ford moving production into two right to work states that bar factories from requiring workers to join a union to work there. The article says, quote, Climate-concerned Democrats get to see EV production expand in the U.S., while climate-rary Republicans get to add jobs in their home states and unions get shafted, end quote. So what do you think about this move in terms of the politics of moving away from fossil fuels and electrifying things in this country?
3: I'll say first and foremost, I am not a labor expert, nor do I uh, opine on the uh, the politics of union unionization. Um, as a, a matter of just practice, I'm I'm an electrification policy person, but uh, that has its its reach. I think the bigger picture here is that we are seeing opportunities in more states with electrification, and the expansion of this market is huge, and we've really only begun to scratch the surface. So. My takeaway would be more jobs in more states and you know the the opportunities for not just the the cars themselves but the supply chain and the expanded infrastructure for you know software and hardware alike. I think we're going to see uh, I you know I'm hoping to see with with more policy focus, especially that there will be a, a concurrent emphasis on good jobs, good paying jobs as well as this EV. Uh, transformation. I don't think that they have to be in conflict. I think we're undergoing a pretty substantial transformation in our workforce writ large uh, for a lot of reasons. And globalization, as well as global competitiveness, should be a primary focus. So bringing more jobs back to the U.S., getting more domestic manufacturing, and ensuring that the U.S. is going to play in this market, uh, I think is really where we're trying to focus.
1: Josh Nasser, is it possible that someone who builds internal combustion engines can move to electric cars? Are those the same people, the same skills? Because EVs have a lot fewer parts.
6: So first of all, our members, I mean, they they learn to new technologies and go through retrainings consistently. So um, as far as the workforce being able to do the work, um, that's not a concern. What we need to make sure is that we're a leader in the world on EV production, and that we're actually in a position where we're exporting EVs, and and uh, you know that's where there's some real um, you know opportunity. So the question is, as a country, are we going to back this transition or not? I mean, you look at countries like China. I mean, that that are leading, that are leading. It didn't happen by accident. There was there was government policy which you know led to that growth. And frankly, we've been falling short here. So that's why we're optimistic that we're turning a corner. Um, But, you know, we, we need to make this happen.
1: Sarah, auto companies in the U.S. and Europe are investing tens of billions of dollars to move from internal combustion engines to electrification. These are announcements and intentions. But it wasn't that long ago that most of the auto industry pivoted in another direction after the 2016 election. So why should we believe the auto companies today talking up EVs that they won't turn on a dime if a Republican president is elected in 2024?
3: Well, uh, I won't speak on behalf of uh, any of the companies, uh, particularly since you have one right here and can answer that better than I. What I would say is kind of a my 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 reflection on the market is is that prices for batteries have declined faster than we've anticipated. In fact, every projection is is exceeded every year, and so we've seen. You know, between 2010 and 2020, about an 89% decline in p- battery prices, and another 20 to 30% decline uh, anticipated in the next five years. We can expect that that will only continue. Consumers again are demanding more models, more up, op- more options, and that consumer demand, I think, is only going to increase as more people want to be a part of the climate solution. Third, I think the the recognition that you know, Republican or Democrat. Uh, President or Congress it doesn't matter as much because this market is moving and we're going to see transformation occur sort of from the ground up. However, with that said, strong policies can make a huge difference in securing this market and giving more stability to automakers, auto workers, consumers alike. Uh, whether it's stronger regulations and more rigorous standards, as well as uh, incentive programs that that we're seeing proposed through both the infrastructure bill as well as the Build Back Better Act, there are a lot of opportunities for us to seize this moment and really drive forward with a concurrent solution that meets all of our needs.
6: Josh Nasser? totally um, agree with that, and just I, th- I think it's really important that when we're looking at where the new production goes, that we 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 make sure that the communities which um, you know are impacted by the reduction in ICE vehicles um, aren't left behind, and we I think it's really critical that we make those uh, investments um, you know in a, in a targeted way people need proof that this is going to result in good jobs and people need that, you know, not just a promise that new jobs will appear at some time. So, so being very deliberate in that and our policy making is, is very, very, very important for the success of the entire effort. Um, and we need this effort to be successful, not just for the environment, but also for having a, um, you know, a leading us auto industry because the rest of the world's moving forward. Sarah Baldwin.
3: One of the things that I'm really heartened by in the, uh, particularly the Build Back Better Act and some of the provisions, granted, this is being uh, cobbled together from multiple committees, it's still a work in progress, nothing is set in stone, but uh, if you look at the, the proposed language coming out of Ways and Means, there are a number of provisions that speak to this need for assuring jobs will be there, including If you're going to get a a tax credit for domestic manufacturing of vehicles um, and EVs, you have to meet prevailing wage requirements and apprenticeships. And you have to give options for manufacturing training and retraining. And there are also concurrent workforce training programs that the Department of Energy will take on if this gets enacted. Um, And they're really, you know, I think they're thinking very comprehensively with respect to how to build. Not just the incentives for consumers or the infrastructure for the actual vehicles, but the whole soup to nuts uh, economic revolution that we're trying to enable here.
1: Sarah Baldwin is Director of Electrification Policy at Energy Innovation. Cynthia Williams is Global Director of Sustainability at Ford Motor Company. And Josh Nasher is Legislative Director at the UAW. Cynthia Williams, when the U.S. federal government moved to weaken California's auto fuel efficiency standards four years ago, Ford stood with California while GM and Toyota sided with the Trump administration. Now that battlefront has moved to heavy-duty trucks, and Ford is a member of the truck and engine manufacturing. Association that is opposing California's push to reduce greenhouse gases from medium and heavy duty trucks. Does Ford support California's advanced clean truck regulations?
7: Absolutely. Uh, it, the heavy duty industry is a large part of our our, our volume as well. In 2030, our global volume are we we plan to have be fully electric, and that's including light-duty and heavy-duty, 40% of our volume, we plan to be fully electric by 2030 timeframe. We're very supportive of the California uh, legislation that, they're put, that they put forth. Uh, in terms of, we, we look at specific customers. We're, we're really talking to our customers to understand what do they need in terms of a commercial vehicle. We have the e-transit vehicle coming out uh, later this year. And that vehicle is strictly for commercial customers. And we've worked with commercial customers to dedicate what range is required for them to get the job done that they need to.
1: Sarah, diesel trucks emit fine pollutants known as PM2.5 that are especially harmful to human lungs. Uh, communities of co- color often live near freeways and ports that are disproportionately impacted by diesel pollution from heavy-duty trucks. Has that impacted knowledge sufficiently in discussions about decarbonizing transport?
3: I think to date, it has not yet surfaced high enough, but it is becoming more and more uh, a fact that is influencing decision makers and policymakers, again, the Build Back Better act that's being proposed seeks to address not just the, uh, the infrastructure and EV incentive piece, but the equity component as well in an attempt to better rectify this uh, longstanding environmental injustice. We've, we've come further along with LDVs, light duty vehicles. Uh, we've got a, a bit more of a way to, ways to go with the larger uh, diesel trucks, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of promising um, movement there as well. So, the faster we can move in this direction, I think, the better off we're all going to be.
1: Josh Nasser, what's the role of federal and state governments here and in, in getting that done? Because some pollutants are l- regulated locally, some are some are nationally. I know you probably focus more nationally, but what's the role of f- the feds and the states in getting this done?
6: Well, it it takes cooperation and a a coordinated plan to really, you know, get it done. I think, you know, when looking at this area and all, you know, this entire topic, I think it's important to, um, to embrace, you know, incremental progress and to kind of do things in a way in which, um, uh, you know, things are improving, but not, uh, but done in line with, um, you know, really kind of the economic realities of, of the popularity of the products. I mean, if you have a situation where, let's say, there's tons of trucks being manufactured and no one's buying them, or cars manufactured, no one's buying them, what good have we really done? So, um, you know, getting those not just produced, but getting them sold is a real role for federal and state policy to really move that along and to make sure we're investing in the manufacturing itself.
1: So Josh mentions uh, embracing incremental progress but will incremental progress get us there fast enough we are in a climate emergency and need to move quickly Sarah so is incrementalism it's it's this conundrum it's kind of it's what we have but will it get, get us there fast enough
3: I think sadly, no, we need to move faster. Um, we we have dragged our feet a little too long. We have about a decade to really address our climate crisis uh, lest we go past the 1.5 degree scenario tipping point, which uh, projects, you know, not just America, but the whole world into a a really untenable space. You know, across all the uh, sectors of our economy, if we're going to get from where we are today, business as usual, to that 1.5 degree scenario, we have to move very quickly in the transportation sector, in the power sector, and in the industrial sector, as well as some land use changes.
1: Josh Nasser, does faster transition scare you?
6: no i mean we're for aggressive regulations when i said incremental i didn't mean incremental as in you know incremental with with very modest changes we we do have to move aggressively but i think we need to do it in a way in which we're not just being um driven by like say a goal 30 year or 20 years from now but also by you know the market conditions and what people are buying and what's happening now but um to be very clear about it i mean we opposed the gutting of the Obama-era uh, cafe light-duty rules—we've not support that for environmental and economic reasons—and um, we embraced um, the fact that they were replaced with with stronger standards. Um, our president, Ray Curry, was there with the president of the United States and with Ford Motor Company and other companies promoting that. So, so we're for making changes quickly, but we need to do it in a you know way we're keeping a careful balance.
1: Cynthia Williams, President Biden wants half the cars sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2030. Does the infrastructure package uh, move us in that direction? What else needs to happen to get half the cars sold in this country electric in less than 10 years?
7: President Biden's um, infrastructure package, I think, is is a good step, uh, uh, you know, a positive step in the right direction. We definitely need infrastructure. We need n- not only the infrastructure piece of it, we also need the incentives that Josh mentioned earlier. Those will help consumers get into the vehicles faster and to get into the vehicles now. All these things are critical steps to accelerating the market further. We fully support uh, President Biden's greenhouse gas and fuel economy rules. In the future, we also need to move, we need to keep the eye on the prize. If the eye is to move towards electrification, let's work together so that we're strengthening regulations to do that. And, but harmonizing other regulations so that it's not a complicated thing. We also need to work together to help educate not not only government, but also consumers around the benefits of these products and what does it take in the overall cost of ownership. These vehicles are, are, are about 40 percent uh, over cost of ownership overall, less expensive than your ICE engines. These vehicles are fun to drive. So that, those are some of the things we need to teach and educate consumers about what the vehicles are and help to accelerate the market.
1: Sarah, the you know electric charging infrastructure is a clearly an obstacle. Are we doing enough on that? Is there enough in the infrastructure package? Because range anxiety is a thing. Are we doing enough there? What needs to happen on infrastructure to make this vision a reality?
3: So the answer is we're not doing enough yet. Uh, the infrastructure bill is a good start—7.5 billion towards uh, expanded EV infrastructure and an emphasis on putting infrastructure where it's not already. Uh, you know, the private EV uh, charging companies tend to flock towards where there are e- existing EV drivers, uh, so that's leaving some areas definitely underserved. Uh, and so, what we need to be using our federal or state dollars to to fund are the places where the private sector's not going. Uh, so I think that that's a really nice synergy there. Um, and then we also know that we're not, um, you know, giving incentives to places that don't need them. Um, and that's everything from, you know, urban infrastructure to serve multifamily, more public charging, uh, as well as rural and long distance highway charging. Uh, one of the things I would really love for our country to, to double down on is a, you know, cross country, Uh, alternative charging infrastructure corridor and multiple corridors so that not only long-haul trucking uh, is served, but the average uh, American family who wants to take a road trip from East Coast to West Coast knows that they can do it in an EV. Now, there are some existing corridors already, but expanding that substantially is what we really need to see uh, to meet the demand and also grow uh, confidence in consumers.
1: Cynthia I've I've owned a, a EV for 10 years and one of the questions I often get is what about the batteries it's nasty mining lithium and what happens to them afterwards uh, after life you know Ford's partnering with Redwood Materials as part of a plan to create a closed loop recycling for EV batteries how would this work in practice and how soon will that operate at scale
7: well, as as we uh, gear up uh, these and open these new plants in 2025, we hope to have our partner there with us. And uh, again, we're setting up the the structure so that we can bring these batteries back and and reutilize the material uh, from from these batteries to build new and improved batteries in the future. So the goal is to have a closed loop uh, recycling uh, process as part of our rollout, and we're working with the industry to do that.
1: Well, thank you for coming on Climate One today and sharing your insights about the maybe inevitable, maybe not, transition to electrifying the way we get around this country and around the world. Thank you all.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you.
1: On this Climate One, we've been talking about fully electrifying our homes, lives, and industries for a future far less dependent on fossil fuels. This program was underwritten in part by Climate Works Foundation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency to hear more subscribe to our podcast on apple spotify or wherever you get your pods talking about climate can be difficult sometimes depressing but also can be interesting and exciting please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review or better yet telling a friend it really does open up the climate conversation brad marshland is our senior producer ariana brocious is our producer and audio editor our audio engineer is arnav gupta our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.
0: Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.